0: Well, good morning, Harvest. I hope you guys have had a great week. Um, if, uh, if you're fairly new to Harvest or I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Andy Hoffman. I'm the pastor of students and young adults um, here at Harvest. And so uh, this morning... We're going to be out of Luke 22, and so if you have a Bible, go ahead and start opening there to Luke 22. If you need a Bible, just go ahead and pop your hand in the air. We'd love to get one uh, in your hand, and if for some reason you don't have one at your own home, please take this one. Keep it. It's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word of God uh, in your hand, Um, not just this morning, but uh, for the rest of your life. And so uh, to this morning, we're going to be continuing on in our series of, of injustice, looking at uh, the Passion Week, the Easter story. And so this week, uh, looking at Luke 22, starting in verse 66, we're really going to be di- diving in and digging into uh, the, the trials of Jesus. And so this is the injustice and the innocence of Jesus. And so as we really look into this, I start thinking about this word injustice, and and I've come to realize that uh, we all hate injustice. I think that's a fair statement to make. Uh, Injustice is also a really interesting thing when you really begin to think about it, because uh, we hate it and it makes our blood boil. But so often we find ourselves... Uh, Doing something about it. It it makes us act, right? And this is why I know a lot of you are involved in a pro life movement or some of you are involved in refugee movements and stuff like that. Um, And it's because we see an injustice and we want to do something about it. We see things that we don't like and and, and we we even try to do something about it. But after a while, we have a tendency to ignore it. And I don't mean ignore it as in the sense of forget about it, but I mean ignore it in the sense of like we know it's there. And it's always gonna be there so it becomes secondary in our lives. Sometimes we'll just say, you know, that that's the system. And and you know, we see the injustice, but that's that's all it is. And we walk away from it because it's seemingly a loss cause to us. You know, or, or what happens is we'll wait till the next injustice and then we'll get fired up about that injustice and then, and then you know, it's a repeat cycle and that, that is until injustice happens to us, right? And then when injustice happens to us, we don't let it go and we want to keep it moving forward. We, we death grip the cause and we want everyone to jump to our defense and fight the same fight alongside of us and be th- with the same passion and fervor that we have because the injustice is done to us. And in the end, though, many times we look up from our injustice is done to us, and we see that the people that started fighting alongside of us are no longer there because it's not their fight, and they've kinda faded off. You know, and, and, and so the reality is with these things, the injustice doesn't stop, it's the interpretation of the injustice of how we view it. The injustice just doesn't, just doesn't stop. The people around us, we just no longer see the reason to fight. And so we look at the injustice and the innocence. I, I even think about, uh, you know, some of those random things that you think about or you remember uh, as, you're a, as you're a kid, right? One of the first things I remember, not first things I remember, but one of the, like, the oddest things I remember is, uh, is June 1994. I remember my parents turning on TV and we're watching a white Bronco in California driving down the 405 freeway in a slow speed chase, right? And, and if you know, you know, if you're anything with that, you know that the world is watching O.J. Simpson trying to flee the police and a... Slow speed chase. And so what ends up happening is that his trial plays out on TV, and it plays out all over the country. And and what we would call a fair trial, because at least he had a trial, right? But at the end of it, he's found innocent, which we would say may be an injustice. Though we say he had a fair trial, we would say the outcome might be an injustice. That's where we, we, we get the very famous, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. Right? All the evidence pointed in one way or the other, but at the end, he was innocent. And I think about, I grew up in Central Florida, right? And so I think about in the year 2008, a girl named Casey Anthony uh, was, was put on trial for, for potentially killing her daughter, Kaylee Anthony, who she, she waited 30 days to report her missing. And then we see the trial goes from 2008 and starts in 2011. We see the trial and everyone in Central Florida is going, I know she did it, right? And the trial plays out, and as the trial plays out, the verdict comes down, and everyone's thinking she's going to be guilty, but then it says innocent. And the country goes into an outrage because they see what they would see, in injustice played out in a fair movement. And then I, I, I love history. So then I think about, about those Salem witch trials in 1692, all these trials that are done in secret, though. right? We think about the injustice from some history, secret trials now, and we see 200 Women essentially accused of being a witch, and we see nineteen of them accused, tried in secret trials, and hung by their neck because they were a witch. And then we even see in the nineteen forties and the nineteen fifties we see the the unfair trials of McCarthyism and the Red Scare and the Communist Scare, and these secret backdoor trials of people being accused and convicted like that, and it becomes an injustice. So I say all that say this, there's just injustice all over the place. We can point to it, right? And the injustice is easier to hide when the trials that are actually going on are faux formalities and you know, the question that comes is this, why do we do things in secret? Out of all these things, right, so we have the fair shake at the trial and, and it comes out doesn't necessarily come out our way and we still see it in justice, but then the secret trials begin to happen and the things that we don't see begin to happen. And why, well, the question is, why do we do things in secret? Well, it's because we have something to hide, right? We do things in secret because we have something to hide or we don't wanna face the truth or better yet, because we want an outcome but not the pressure to defend our own desires. We want the outcome that we want but then We don't want to defend our own desires of the outcome. And I always think it's a bit ironic that when we talk about injustice, so often the injustice is happening to us and we are not the ones being unjust. And so all that to say, we come here now to the final days of Jesus and we see the injustice that happens. Injustice doesn't start at the trials of Jesus. Injustice doesn't end at the trials of Jesus. But injustice is all throughout the trial of Jesus. Jesus. So it's a a, a sham trial, right, with eternal implications. It's a a trial that actually ends in the rejection of truth and the rejection of of justice, and and now this is where it's really easy to begin to tune out, and because we've heard it all before, and because we know the gospel story, we know what happens, but I'm going to beg you and implore you not to tune out at this point, because we're going to frame this in a way where we actually see the injustice of Jesus being drawn out that ends up being justice for us. So let's pray. I'm going to jump into this. Father God, Lord, we love you. God, I pray that as we look through this text, God, it would not be white noise, things that we think we see or think we know, God, but it would be the truth of the gospel being renewed in our heart, that we'd see the weightiness of our own sin, that we would see the wickedness of our own lives, God, that we would see the injustice that we have caused in the midst of this. God, we love you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen, amen. So the question, I'm gonna go back into a little bit what Daryl was talking about last week. So what has brought us to, to this point? So we see that that Jesus was betrayed by Judas for a few pieces of silver. And then we see that Peter betrayed Jesus by denying him three times. And, and even though Peter was like, Lord, I'm not gonna deny you, I'm not gonna deny you, he, he did three times Rejection, rejection, rejection. And even on the third time we know in the scriptures that Jesus and Peter actually lock eyes, which is if you when you read that in, in its actual like in its full context, like it is the rejection happening as Jesus is looking at him. And and we see the injustice that happens here. Like this rejection by his by his friends was personal because of the intimacy that it contained. And and now we, we look at this now, he was mocked and then hit. And, and you have Roman soldiers saying, Prophesy, who is it that that struck you? And so now we start looking into the trials. We see the rejection by his mockers. We see the rejection of the priests and the rulers. And we see a direct rejection and assault on the character of Jesus and his lordship. Now, being a bit tongue-in-cheek, that's my case. I'm going to give you my facts. So we look at this. What's the first thing we see in this passage? We see the rejection of truth. So how do we know this? Verse 66, chapter 22. When the day came... The assembly of the elders of the people gathered, both chief priests and the scribes. So when the day came, so we're talking about 4 a.m. to 6 a.m., depending on, on what time of day, when the sun came up and all those different things that all the commentators want to talk about. But this one, it says, when the day came, the assembly met. really, this is just the the illusion here that they just started meeting then, because this is actually, according to the other Gospels, this is actually the third trial, the beginning of the third trial. The first one we see in other Gospels is a pre-trial of sorts with Ananias, the old high priest, where he is accused, and where he is questioned, and where he is honestly mocked and then we see the second trial, which goes to Caiaphas, the actual high priest at the time. And it's another pre-trial, and where Jesus is questioned, where he is accused. And then we see this trial, verse 66, the third trial. So by this time, let's just be real, the, uh, it's already been set. Their minds have already, already been set And so technically, the Sanhedrin, the the Pharisees and the rulers, right, they they can't hold the trial at night because that's illegal. But we know that the outcome has already been set by the time that this trial begins. And they're trying to give the picture of being legitimate. They waited until the morning to give their findings. Now, I'm going to pause here because as with anything... The guilty verdict didn't start there. So often we see that the guilty verdict, and we often think, well, uh, here's the guilty verdict, but we know even in our own hearts, we make up our minds long ahead before we actually give a verdict of something. It's usually not done in the moment. It's usually not done then and there. It's usually done on the, everything else that's building up to this point. It started long before this moment for Jesus and even the events that happened in the previous hours. It started at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. See, when his, his ministry began, he was baptized by John and John said, we're going to baptize you to fulfill all, or Jesus says, to fulfill all righteousness. And after this, Jesus was performing miracles and healing people. And if you want to turn with me, turn with me to Luke chapter seven, because this is where the accusations, this is where the mind is made up. So we see John baptize Jesus and even within our, so often in our own lives, John experiences a little bit of doubt because we, as so many of us, we've come to accept Jesus, we've come to confess and believe in Jesus, but even times in our life we begin to say, is Jesus really who he said he is? Is this God of the Bible really who he said he is? And John is having one of those moments here because he says, verse 18, the, di- the disciples of John reported all these things to him. Well, reported what things? His miracles. And he called two of his disciples and saying to the Lord, uh, or, sorry, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So John's doubt is shown here. It says this, and when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist sent us, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And here's the great thing I love about this passage. It says, In that hour. "'In that hour he healed many people of diseases "'and plagues and evil spirits, "'and on many who were blind he bestowed sight, "'and he answered them, "'Go and tell John what you have just seen and heard.'" So it was done before them. So even in the midst of their doubt, Jesus is still showing his goodness saying, look, you can question me, you can doubt me, but look what I am doing that's pointing to the fact that I am who I say I am. And by the way, now go and tell John what you've seen and heard because the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor give the good news to preach to them. And so we, we look at this, and so, and so uh, the messengers go back and tell John, and Jesus begins talking about who John is, and ultimately we come to this passage in verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, having been baptized by him. So we see... Jesus' ministry begins. He was baptized by John and he was performing miracles and we see what happens in Luke chapter seven what we just read and, and it says, <laughs> breaking down to this, it's saying, are you the Christ? Are you who we're supposed to be, to be waiting for? And Jesus is saying, can't you see? You've been supposed to be seeing it all along and now in this hour, now that you're asking me again, let me show you again who I am. And so Luke has been setting up the response for this from the beginning. He says that Jesus was born of a virgin. He was given the name Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. If that's not a good enough name for this whole analogy, I'm not sure what is. Right? He's talking about his miracles. He's talking about, talking about the fulfillment of his prophecy. And then we read the verse 28 and 29, and they said the people realized that God's plan was not like any other earthly plan. He was not like any other earthly king. It was truly for all, for the down and out, for those who would repent. It was for not just the elites. It was for the Pharisees. But they rejected the gospel for themselves. I do think it's easy, Uh, interesting. We're gonna go to this real quick. Verse 36, immediately after this interaction, immediately after it says that the Pharisees rejected God for themselves, the, the purpose of God for themselves verse 36, it says one of the Pharisees asked to eat with him he took him into his house and placed him at his table and a woman of the city was a sinner, she was uh, she, she was there at the table with the Pharisees and she bought the ointment she stood behind him and she weeped him and wet his, his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and, and then we see that the Pharisee said I can't do this, like you gotta go And if the Pharisees rejected him, why have them into your house? This had to be for one of two things. It was either trying to talk some sense into Jesus and make a friend out of him, or it was to get to know your enemy. That was it. Whatever the reason, it ended quickly because the Pharisee realized it wasn't going to be like another... It ended quickly because it, the Pharisee realized that Jesus wasn't like everybody else. He wasn't going to be bought off or paid off or talked down because he was who he said he was. Then we look at verses like Matthew 21, 25, where, where the Pharisees are, are really just, in, just digging into Jesus with the questions. And they're saying, by whose authority do you do these things? So again, setting up their mind already before we get to Luke twenty-two sixty-six, 66, right? Already setting up their minds, says, by whose authority do you, do you do these things? And here's the, here's, the, here's the side note of this. If you read that passage, the Pharisees never deny that Jesus did what he actually did. They're just saying, by whose authority do you do it? They're not saying, oh, you didn't do that miracle. You didn't do that thing. You didn't heal that person. They're not saying he didn't do that. They're just saying, by whose authority? And all the while, we're looking at this, reading it going, uh, well, hello. And, and they're looking at it going like, it's not done by me. So whose authority do you have? Because I'm the authority. That's what the Pharisees begin to think. And these accusations begin uh, with Jesus responding by asking the Pharisees whose baptism was John's, by man or by God. And so this already sets a a bitter taste in their mouth. Now before we jump into Luke 22 again, this always begs the question to me. In our own lives, how often, even when we're facing the facts in front of us, do we ignore what we know for what we want and for what we feel? I'm pretty sure there's a good case to be laid out already based off scripture that Jesus was who he said he was. And I'm pretty sure that the Pharisees are going, by whose authority do you do these things? And Jesus all the while is going, like, you should know whose authority I'm doing these things by because I told you over and over and over again. But yet they've hardened their hearts towards him. They've already made up their mind against him. And how often do we do that in the same manner or same way? Going, Jesus, like, look, go you, leave me alone. How often do we do do those things? We settle on our sin even in the midst of uh, God before us. We say, I know what the Bible says, Andy. I know what what God says. I can even quote to you half the Bible. I, I raise my hands in worship. I pray really good. I even come to prayer and praise. But yet, we're setting our hearts against him. We want the benefits of God without having to give God the authority of our life and the lordship for him and to him. And so the first century Jews longed and hoped for the Messiah. They longed and hoped for what we have. They waited for him. They prayed for him. They wanted him. They yearned for him. They begged God for him. But when they saw him, he was rejected by his own. When they saw him, he was rejected by his own. Now let's look at this verse 22, or chapter 22, looking at verse 66. So when the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests, and the scribes, and they led him away to their council, finally to give some sort of legitimacy to their trial, their sham trial, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you're not gonna answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated on the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from His own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man, but they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout Judea and the Galilee, even to this place. So, even though he has proved himself over and over again. We can even see in John chapter 1 verse 10 where it says he puts it plainly, I was in the world, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So he knew from the get-go that he would be rejected. Now, This is where I begin as a pastor and even as a Christian to begin to put myself in the feet of Jesus. Because if I'm supposed to be emulating Jesus, that means I need to be walking like Jesus walked. And so often I look and I I look and I insert myself into that picture and I'm going, if I knew from the very foundation, from the very beginning that I was going to be mocked, beaten, rejected, killed, would I do it? (laughs) Would I want that life? And I can tell you right now, so often my heart's screaming, no. And here's the reality. For some of us, we go like, I would do that. No, you wouldn't. We would not live the life that was designed for Jesus. We can hardly live the life that was designed for us, let alone live the life that was designed for the the Son of Man. And and we begin to look at this and, and be like, yeah, I would do that. No, we would not take the beating. We would not take the scourging. We would not take the mocking or the betrayal or the accusations. We would not take the trial of the cross. But he was rejected by his own. And so they gathered at the official trial to begin to interrogate Jesus. And you look at verse 67, and they said this, If you are the Christ, tell us. Again, he's been showing himself over and over and over that he is who he said he is. And if the Pharisees know the Old Testament the way they should, everything that they know in prophecy that pointed to Jesus, they should be able to see, but they don't because they've hardened their hearts and their minds towards him. And so Jesus said, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. So Jesus asked if he was his Messiah, the Messiah. His answer is yes and no. He was the Messiah that the scriptures indicated, but not the Messiah that the Jews were hoping for. They wanted the conquering king who would be on a horseback with a sword, coming through the gates, taking over an earthly kingdom to demand his kingdom on earth. That is not who Jesus is, and that is not his intention He doesn't care about the earthly kingdoms. He cares about his eternal godly kingdom, and he is coming on that basis. And so they wanted a conquering king to give them power over the Romans and make them the rulers of the nations, and Jesus is saying, look, if you would just see it, I could give you so much more. You want a city by a sea, and I can give you the world in eternity. That's what it's breaking down to. And so the question here that I love is, is he said to them, look, if I tell you, you're not going to believe me. Look, if I tell you, I've told you, I told you, and I told you, and you're still not going to believe me. So what is the point at this part now? Then he says this, and if I ask you, you will not answer. Which, When I first read that, when you read that quickly, you're kind of like, that's, that's an interesting phrase. But really what it's coming down to is Jesus says, if I ask you, I put the burden of proof back on you and you are not going to admit that I am the son of God. Because you take all the information, all the facts and everything that you need, and I ask you, you tell me who I am. What are you going to say? And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in this way. And so, verse 69 Jesus comes out of that saying, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated on the right hand of the power of God. This is what I love. One commentator here, based off that one statement in this gospel, says this. One one commentator says that Jesus in this moment is becoming the believer's advocate and the unbeliever's prosecutor. He's becoming the advocate for all the believers, for those who would put their faith and trust in him, and he becomes the prosecutor for those who would deny him and reject him. He is saying, I have the authority. I sit at the right hand of God. I have these things. I am who I say I am. And so this is God declaring, and Jesus declaring his, his rightful state, and then Jesus is asked again, so are you the son of God then? which anyone who knows me knows that I hate answering the same question over and over and over again. So about this point in the trial, I'd be screaming, okay? So, so you are the son of God then. And they said to them, and he said to them, you say that I am. You say that I am. Then he said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Now, so we see in this passage, we see that Are you the son of God? But we also see Luke drawing out three different titles of Jesus. Christ, the son of man, and the son of God. Now, do you think that Luke is driving a point home here? Do you think that Luke is looking back going, hey, uh, this is what they're saying? No, they themselves, between Jesus and the Pharisees, are admitting all these different titles that he holds. They're looking forward towards this. And Jesus is saying, "Uh, yeah, like you're saying these things. And so he draws those out, all these titles pointing to the Lordship of Jesus, and he's saying, you say that I am, you're the one that's declaring this, so you should see it. And then here's the irony right here, where they say, all right, what further testimony do I need? Which is ironic here, right? It's ironic, it's funny, because it puts the burden of proof back onto onto the Pharisees. What they should have been seeing all along, they don't. And then in a roundabout way, they actually admit that he is God. Because in this moment, you could say, all right, well, he's, he's being charged for blasphemy, blasphemy, but they're saying, you're saying that you're God. We're saying that you're claiming to be God. And so in this weird roundabout way, Jesus begins to make them admit that he is who he is. He admits that he is God and in a divine sense. Like, understand this, Jesus would not be killed without making this clear. Jesus would not go to the cross without making his lordship clearly known. And so it's an interesting point here when when people will argue that Jesus never says to be God. Jesus never claimed to be God. And if you ever talk to anyone of a different religion, you might hear that in a conversation. Well, Jesus, even some Christians, unfortunately, right? They'll say, well, Jesus never declared to be God. Caveat back on that. I wouldn't necessarily call the people that don't declare Jesus God to be Christians. All right, clear, okay. Christians, air quotes. But, When people say Jesus never claimed to be God, then why in the world, why in the world was he killed by people in his own time that directly assumed that that's what he was saying? If Jesus never claimed to be God, then why was he killed by people in his own time, by his own Jewish Pharisees who thought that's exactly what he was saying? Because they're bringing up charges of blasphemy. He's saying, he's God, what else do we need? Let's take him out. And so this lack of trial being against the Sanhedrin's code, right? And again, I ask this question, how often do we violate our own beliefs to obtain an outcome that we desire? We do it every single time we sin. We cast off what we know and pursue something else. We say no to God and yes to the flesh. This is why the scriptures say that you wrestle with flesh and blood. How often do we do those things? Just like the, the Sanhedrin is doing now, they're casting off what they know to what they want. And so we see 23, then the whole company again, uh, the, them, they took him before Pilate and they accused him. And so here's the, the irony of this, again, this whole situation is that their accusation of why they wanted Jesus killed was because he was claiming to be God. But all of a sudden in front of Pilate, they have to make it sound much worse because they needed the Romans to follow through on the execution of Jesus. And so what does he say? He says three different charges. This man is misleading the nation. This man is forbidding us to pay tribute to Caesar. And this man is saying that he is a king. Well, we can know by the response of of Pilate The chances are that that Pilate completely throws out the first two. First one, misleading a nation. That's too ambiguous for a Roman prefect to really dive into. The second thing, He's forbidding us to pay tribute to Caesar. Well, Jesus taught in a large group of people, and I'm pretty sure what is said gets spread out around people. And we know in Luke 20, 25, that Jesus asked about the coin with Caesar's face on it. And Jesus himself says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. So then see, uh, so then, Pilate at this point knows that that's completely false because Jesus himself said that we are to you pay your tribute to Caesar. But then they say he is a king. And this is where it catches Pilate's attention because we understand that as a Roman prefect who is guarding in the name of Caesar must protect Caesar's empire. And he says, So are you the king of the Jews? So notice, notice he doesn't say the king of me because he's king of the Jews. And the Jews, the Pharisees themselves, didn't say our king, he says Christ a king. So hoping to elicit a bigger reaction from Pilate Pilate turns him back and says, So are you there, king? Which we look at, and they begin to answer these questions. And Pilate said to the chief priests, Look, I find no guilt in this man, but they were urgent, saying, But he stirs up the people. And he's teaching all throughout Judea and from Galilee, even to to this place. Now, between the, the Jewish Pharisees and between Pilate, there's one common thread here that needs to be asked. And it's a common thread and a question that we need to ask. And the question comes down to this, who is Jesus? And here's the reality, how you and I answer that question informs the rest of our life and our eternity. When we answer that question, who is Jesus? Our lives demand an answer. It is either he is who he said he is, or he is not. And if you've ever come and encountered with truly encountered Jesus, you don't walk away from the encounter can, not unchanged. You don't walk away and go, "Well, oh, that was nice. That was good. That made me feel warm and fuzzy." It's either you walk to him. And because of his salvation, you walk with him or you reject him. When you encounter Jesus, those are the two choices we have. We don't have the luxury or the option to sit there and say, well, I kind of want Jesus, but I kind of don't. Now, this is where we start hearing stories and testimonies when people encounter Jesus in a radical way that we see the testimony of of the addiction, of of the drugs, the alcohol, any addictions, whatever else, they're immediately gone and for the rest of their life they're pursuing Jesus in a a good way. Now those are well to do and I love those type of testimonies but majority of testimonies aren't that way. Majority of testimonies is I encountered Jesus and he changed my life and now I see my sin in a completely different way and now I'm going to be battling it. Worse and worse and worse as I walk with Jesus because the enemy is going to be attacking me harder and harder and harder and harder because now I don't, I don't have the luxury anymore of seeing my sin not as sin. When I've encountered Jesus and I see my sin as sin, as the thing that separates me between me and God and the weightiness that I put into the eyes of God and he cannot look at me because of my sin, only through Christ can I have reconciliation with that relationship. That is the moment we know that we've encountered Jesus. And both the Pharisees and Pilate will say, who is Jesus? Now they've answered that question in a poor way. And we see this, that even as no guilt is found, Pilate is still answering that question of who is Jesus. So not only was he rejected by his own people, but he was also rejected by the Gentiles. How do we know? Because it says, verse six, when Pilate heard this, He asked whether this man was a Galilean and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod and he himself in Jerusalem at that time when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. It says so he questioned him at some length and he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, uh, accusing him. And, and Herod with the soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other in that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with one another. So Luke Luke alone records this impromptu trial before Herod. And Herod, here's the reality too. Herod didn't ask the question, who are you? Because Herod had already had his mind made up because he was probably familiar with Jesus because Herod is over the Galileans. And he 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 had one question for him. He pretty much said, I want you to do something for me. I want you to be a sorcerer or a mystic or a magician and do a nice little trick for me. I want to see you and I want you to perform. And that's really what Herod wanted. And it says Jesus was questioned at some length, but he made no answer. And so we see that why did Jesus stop replying? Because people at this point were so willfully blind and it didn't matter what he said, he would be wrong in their eyes. And Jesus' silence look is places full responsibility onto the accusers for the outcome of his trial. Jesus could have ended the injustice Church. You understand me when I say that right? Jesus could have stopped the injustice. He could have said enough with this. He could have called legions of angels down to stop the injustice. Just as when he was on the cross, he could have done the same thing. He could have ended it all and proved once and for all that I am who I say I am, but he chose not to. This is the same Jesus when he was being arrested at the Garden of Gethsemane and they said, who is Jesus? And he says, I am he, where these guards were thrown back onto their backs. But he did it to fulfill Isaiah 53, where it says, He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people." He fulfilled that in his silence. He could have ended it at any moment, and he was silent. So we look at verses 13. And so Herod throws him back and, and, and mocks him by putting a royal garb on him and, and sends him back and says, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who's misleading the people. And after examination before you, behold, I cannot find the guilt of this man or any of charges against him. And neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will punish him and I will release him. So up to this point, both men declared him innocent. And Luke obviously believed this because he confirmed this in Acts chapter 4, verse 25-28, through 28, where he says, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves as the rulers that were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you have anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Look, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God's plan. So we have three not guilty verdicts when you're looking at the trials of Jesus. Two from Pilate and one from Herod. Pilate releasing him or trying to release him over and over and over. But it says this, that they cried out together. Who's the the they? It's a mix of the Jews and the Gentiles, the Pharisees and those of a host of people who have given themselves over to a sense of bloodlust that have been blinded by the enemy. See, they wanted, they wanted Barabbas. They, they said, a man who had been thrown into prison, give us Barabbas, release him, who'd actually been convicted of the very things that they said Jesus was doing. Let me tell you something. If I'm innocent and I'm being convicted of something and the guy that was actually proven convicted of what they said I was doing made me switch places, I would be furious. I would scream injustice and so would you but they wanted Barabbas. And so we see that Barabbas was guilty and Jesus was not. And we see Jesus, the righteous, beaten and mocked while Barabbas, the guilty, goes free. And then secondly, what do we see? We see that the Jewish leaders have become the very thing they actually were accusing Jesus of, which was stirring up the crowds. The Jews welcomed their Messiah with palm branches just a few days prior, and now they're always screaming and calling for his crucifixion, church. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. So, what do we see? So they start screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And a third time, Pilate says, why, what evil has he done? I have found no guilt in him, deserving death. I will therefore punish him and release him, verse 23. But they were urgent, demanding the loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided their demand should be granted. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Now we see that this is truly the rejection of truth and the rejection of justice. So they all cried out together. And Pilate, so often, Pilate gets blamed for this. But Pilate tried to free Jesus. The Jewish Pharisees saying he must die. The Jews are saying that he claims to be Christ. And then now here's the thing. In, in other gospels, it's actually notated that, that Pilate now, when they hear that he claims to be Christ, Pilate, Pilate actually becomes a bit frightened because not only is he now dealing with a possible man problem, but now he's also dealing with a divine problem. He has divine origin. And then so the Jews threaten Pilate by saying this, If you don't crucify a man accused of trying to usurp Caesar by claiming to be a king, then you are no friend of Caesar. So now Pilate has to act again in a place of self-preservation. And he says that he delivered Jesus over to their will. Now one thing I want to note here is at this point, at this final verdict, the Gospel of John actually says the final verdict came at the sixth hour, or around noon, on the day of the preparation of Passover. The day of the preparation of Passover is the day that the lamb was slain for the Passover feast. It's the day that they were slaughtered for the Sabbath dinner of the Passover week. And so here's the thing, church. I don't believe in coincidences when I read the scriptures as Jesus being our final Passover lamb. And so I see this as the the emphasis that Jesus was the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And at the moment when the true Passover lamb was being declared guilty, the actual, the, 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 the symbolistic Passover lamb was being slain for the weak. We see that Luke drives the point of his innocence over and over and over again. We see it with Pilate. We see it with Herod. Ultimately, we see it with the thief on the cross, and then we see it with the centurion who drops to his knee and says, truly, this was the Son of God, right? And so we begin to see this injustice. Church, I would hope that if we truly saw a trial like this today taking place where every piece of evidence pointed to innocence and we declared guilty, that we would be on the streets in a riot. See, the Pharisees got their wish in exploiting the very view that Caesar was not willing to have a rival and Caesar was willing to kill for it. That's how they got Pilate to declare the guilty verdict. Now, Jesus was who he said he was, but the verdict came on the heels of declaring that Caesar would not be usurped. And so he says that Caesar was not willing to have rivals and he was willing to kill for it. But church, I want to kind of put this on its head and spin it a little bit differently. The reality is Jesus will have no rivals and he is willing to die for it. He was willing to take your place in a death you deserve. My place in a death that I so rightly deserve. He was willing to face the injustice. He was willing to, because it was God's plan. How do we know? Because Paul or Luke says in Acts chapter four that it was God's plan that he had predestined before time. He was willing to give us a chance to see his goodness and his mercy and his his perfect character and his love and justice in a way that we do not deserve to see. He was willing to allow us to see the weightiness of our terrible sin, to turn from it and to live a life in his power and church. He still is. He still lives and he still offers us this opportunity. He still does and still is. And this is not the end of the story because Easter is a time where justice and injustice meet. Easter is a story that falls on the same person, the one who is fully God and fully man, the only one who is able to save the reigning king, who is Christ. And so we have to begin to start answering some questions. Who is Jesus? And do we see the rejection of of Christ. Do we see the injustice of Christ? Do we see that he got not what he deserved and that he went willingly to become a sacrifice for us? Church, do we see it? And here's the thing, church, this is not the end of the story. If it was the end of the story, we'd be as Paul says, a people who have no hope, but we know that there is more to the story. And I hate feeling like I have to end on this note that it is him being handed over for crucifixion. But we know on Friday he is crucified, but we know next Sunday we celebrate his resurrection from the dead. And that is our hope that we have in Christ. That is the hope that we have. We see the injustice, but we know that it is injustice for man, but it's justice from God. As Christ takes on the sin of the world through the shoulders, or on his shoulders, and it pleased God the Father that we could have eternal life in him. So I'm gonna encourage you guys. We're gonna come sing a song, a response song in the next minute or two. And if you've not made that decision, if you've not asked yourself the question of who is Jesus and come and come to the answer that he is Lord, I'd encourage you to come and talk to myself, talk to the elders that are going to be up here and pray with them, ask questions. We don't want you leaving here without understanding the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we love you. God, you are glorious. God, you are perfect. God, and we are so thankful that this somber note doesn't end here God but we know that this is not the end we know that there is more to come we know that Easter is still happening we know that you still save we know that you still allow us to see our sin we we know that you allow us to confess and believe in you God there's nothing holding us back God for if you've called us to yourself then we can respond and repent God, we can come to know you in a true wonderful God-saving God-honoring Jesus magnifying way God, we see the injustice of the trials. We see the hardened hearts. And God, I pray for those who are in this room who have that hardened heart. God, I pray that you would soften it, that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear the beauty of Christ. God, we love you. And it's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.